Enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. high school, I had to take a class on American politics. I had to pick a senator, be them, and then work with some other senators, aka my fellow classmates, to put together a bill and try and pass it. I was Congressman Earl Blumenauer from Oregon because he was extremely liberal, and also his website offered a sticker that read, I'm bike curious. I loved that. We ended up working to pass a bill to reduce light pollution, and our teacher, Miss Goebel, was extremely impressed we picked a topic that obscure. We learned about the issue of businesses leaving their lights on at night in an attempt to reduce theft, and about the types of streetlights that reduce light pollution. Yellow light, like sodium lamps or amber LEDs, works best for this, as do lamps that are specifically designed to direct the light downward so the top is covered. There are issues of light trespass, when your neighbor's lights are so bright that it spills over and illuminates your property. There's over-illumination, which I feel like is most prevalent and relevant when it's holiday season and every public tree downtown gets wrapped in lights, when houses and bushes are dazzling, when there's all that shit that lights up on the front lawns like reindeers and Santas and stuff like that. I love it, don't get me wrong, but it is a form of light pollution. Glare is another related type of light pollution, which happens when too bright and poorly directed lights blind people who need to see. Stadium and sports floodlighting is an example of this, or the 300 to 500 watt security lights that are motion activated and often give off 2100 lumens. Quick side note, most bulbs are rated in watts. A 60 watt bulb was standard in the house that I grew up in. It was bright enough, but not blinding. I learned now that the brightness isn't related to the wattage, really. A watt is a measurement of the amount of electricity a bulb uses. A lumen is the amount of light it emits. So the 60-watt incandescent lights in my childhood home were producing 800 lumens. But it would take the much more economical, compact fluorescent bulb only 15 watts to generate 800 lumens, and an LED would use 12 watts for 800 lumens. I'll talk about these kind of light bulbs in a moment. The final type of light pollution I'll address is sky glow, which I see a lot of living in the Pacific Northwest. This is the visible glow caused by light scattering and reflecting off the droplets of atmospheric molecules. Sky glow hides the stars, even on nights that are otherwise relatively clear. It's also far-reaching. You have to travel pretty far away from any city, town, or village to get an unpolluted look at the sky. I haven't ever seen the Milky Way, really, because I've never been far enough from a city on a cloudless night. You have to break through the sky glow to get a good look at our galaxy. There have been nights where the sky looked this sickly shade of orange, and I know that some of that is cloud cover, but it also just highlights the sky glow phenomenon. 
The World Atlas of Artificial Night Sky Brightness, published by Italy's Light Pollution Science and Technology Institute in 2001, has a somewhat out-of-date but still influential breakdown of light pollution based on bright cities and the effect of sky glow on surrounding areas. Light pollution affects people and animals. Baby turtles instinctively move towards glowing things when they hatch on beaches. It's aiming for the moon or stars glinting off the sea, but they're getting run over these days or getting lost and dying on land due to light pollution. Bright lights confuse them. Circadian rhythms, which regulate our sleep, are affected by light levels, so light pollution affects how well you sleep, too. There are a lot of issues that light pollution creates in communities. Back in high school, my group and I presented all of this data on light pollution and how it affects folks, not just astronomers, and we passed our bill, so hell yeah there. (laughs) More importantly, this was in 2008 or 2009, which means I have been aware of dark sky reserves for almost 10 years now. They came up in my research on light pollution, and I just couldn't quite forget about them. I worked Dark Sky Reserves into a vampire novel I was writing in 2014, and into a short story I wrote in 2015, because I could just couldn't get them out of my head. There are a couple regulating bodies around the world that dole out Dark Sky Reserve um, permits, licenses, something like that. The International Dark Sky Association assigns International Dark Sky Reserve status to land, either public or private, that offers, quote, an exceptional or distinguished quality of starry nights and nocturnal environment that is specifically protected for its scientific, natural, educational, cultural, heritage, and or public enjoyment. There are minimum criteria for sky quality, by which they probably mean that they have to have certain weather conditions, because clouds just ruin stargazing completely. There also has to be natural darkness, and, quote, a peripheral area that supports dark sky preservation in the core. This means that folks apply for international dark sky reserve designations with community support, because local land managers have recognized the value of darkness and are going to work to maintain it through regulations and long-term planning. The Dark Sky Reserve process is modeled on other conservation and environmental designation programs, like UNESCO World Heritage Sites and Biosphere Reserves. UNESCO stands for United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, and they designate landmarks or areas that have cultural, historical, scientific, or other significance to the collective interests of humanity. If you're curious, there's a breakdown of UNESCO World Heritage Sites by country on their website, which I'll link to in my own website fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. So in essence, dark sky reserves are a space where everyone agrees to abide by the natural cycle of darkness and light throughout the day. (laughs) That was um, maybe a weird prophetic way to put it. A better description might be, community members agree to prevent excessive light during the night times. Recent history has made dark sky reserves really necessary. Light bulbs have been around since the early 1800s in various forms. I wasn't really aware of this, so I'll explain. Light bulbs have a filament. What it's made of varied throughout history, from Humphrey Davy's carbon filament arc light to the later incandescent bulb. 
Joseph Swan had a light bulb that used carbonized paper filament, which unfortunately only lasted 13.5 hours. But Thomas Edison's light bulb used a bamboo filament that lasted up to 1,200 hours. When an electrical current flows through this filament, the filament heats up and it glows. The inside of a light bulb is a vacuum, meaning there's no air in it, so the filament doesn't oxidize or rust, and the glow lasts a long time. The incandescent bulbs that we use today have tungsten filaments, which last about 1,500 hours. Incandescent light bulbs look like the standard kind of bulb that you'd picture popping up over someone's head when they've had a great idea. There are actually a lot of different kinds of light bulbs that use the filament construction, including metal halide lamps, uh, halogen incandescents, and sodium vapor lamps, uh, and all of these other kind of elements contained in a lamp. There were straight-up mercury lamps, but those are getting phased out of home use because they're inefficient and also mercury's poisonous. There's still trace amounts of mercury in most filament light bulbs, though. There are, al there are alternatives to filament bulbs that folks are buying now because they're more energy efficient. Compact fluorescent lamps, which are those twisty, noodly bulbs that look like a glass tube got wadded up into a light bulb shape, and light-emitting diodes, or LEDs. LED lights are the most expensive because they last the longest and are the most energy efficient. But most don't emit light in all directions, and the light output of a single LED is less than that of incandescent and compact fluorescent lamps, so LED home light bulbs need multiple LEDs in them. I worked with theater lighting and LEDs a lot in my previous jobs, actually. I did lighting work for theaters and events, and LEDs were the next big thing. They don't require as much power to operate as regular theater lights, and you can control the color that they put out from the light board. You don't have to stick a sheet of colored plastic in front of the light to get a specific color, and you can change the color kind of at will. They're incredibly expensive, though. Theater lights are built to last basically forever, so it's an investment to buy them. This could rapidly turn into a lecture where I drop words like ellipsoils and fresnels and par cans. I'll restrain myself. I love theater lighting, though, so it was fun to read up again on something related to that world. There are a lot of different kinds of light bulbs out there right now. Even when there were just a couple brands of incandescents out there, though, and no options like compact fluorescent bulbs or LEDs, light bulbs became a standard of home and commercial lighting within a few decades of their introduction to the world market. They quickly started causing problems for astronomers. Admittedly, astronomers already had a lot of problems when it came to observing the stars. As far back as Ibn al-Haytham in the 10th century AD or Chinese polymath Shen Ko in the 11th century, astronomers knew that our atmosphere refracts light. You have to do your stargazing higher up to get a perspective that avoids atmospheric distortion. This is why so many observatories are built on mountains and as far above sea level as possible. With the addition of electric lights, which were often used at night in larger towns and cities, there was now the added problem of sky glow and glare. Streetlights are a particular bane on astronomical research. This came up in episode 5, but part of the reason that the German astronomer Walter Bade, who was working in California, was able to observe stars in the Andromeda Galaxy during World War II was because of periodic citywide blackouts that were used to protect Los Angeles from bombings. And this was in the 1940s. He was at Mount Wilson Observatory, and with the blackout conditions, he was able to see stars and variations in star color that were normally invisible. This led him to discover that there are two types of CFID variable stars. CFIDs are explained more in episode 5 if you want to re-listen to that one. 
Bade's observations led to him revisiting the calculations of the size of the universe and doubling the universe size proposed by Hubble in his 1929 paper on redshift distance relations, which was mind-blowing. <laughs> this was unintentional, but I learned that Bade also worked with Fritz Zwicky, who was the astronomer who coined the term dark matter and who I talked about in episode 14. Bade and Zwicky identified supernovae together, which also requires a great deal of natural darkness. The two of them also proposed the existence of neutron stars and proposed that supernovae could create neutron stars, which is a thing that happens. So pretty cool guy. And he got around the American astronomer community. My point is there's a need for darkness. Dark sky reserves were put in place to fulfill this need. Wikipedia had a list of current dark sky reserves, and they have them in the following countries. Canada, the Czech Republic, Germany, Hungary, Ireland, Israel, Namibia, New Zealand, Poland, Slovakia, Ukraine, the UK, and the US in alphabetical order. There are a few dark sky reserves that Wikipedia says are in place around specific observatories, and it's a short list, so I'll just say them really quick. New Zealand's Mount John University Observatory, Kitt Peak, Palomar, Mount Laguna, McDonnell University, and Mount Hopkins in the USA, Dominion Astrophysical Observatory, and Montmagansic Observatory in Canada, Italy's Mont Ecar Observatory and Asiago Astrophysical Observatory, Observatoire de Haute-Provence in France, and the Czech Republic's Andrejov Observatory and Klet. Who boy. I mean, relative to how many observatories there are in the world, that's not a lot of observatories with dark sky reserves surrounding them. The International Dark Sky Association insists that bodies applying for dark sky reserve status have some kind of legal ownership and legal rights in place to enforce their protection of the sky. Communities, parks, reserves, and sanctuaries are all places that can apply for dark sky reserve status. Folks then have to enforce certain levels of night sky brightness. The International Dark Sky Association lists these in terms of magnitude, which is a concept I've addressed before. It's a measure of brightness, where the brighter something is, the lower its value. It was first applied to star brightness. The star magnitude scale also increases by a factor of 5, so a magnitude 5 star appears 5 times brighter than a magnitude 6 star, while a magnitude 4 star appears 10 times brighter than a magnitude 6 star. The International Dark Sky Association standardizes its... Uh, magnitude requirements as, quote, night sky brightness routinely equal to or darker than 20 magnitudes per square arc second. This is a really technical measurement, and I'm not actually very sure how you determine this kind of magnitude, and I think it might be different from the star magnitude scale. <laughs> it's not really related to astronomers in their field of observation, either. I do know that there's a scale in place that amateur astronomers have been using for the past decade to quantify lighting conditions during their observations. The Bortle Scale. John Bortle is an amateur astronomer in the sense that he doesn't teach astronomy at the college level. His credentials on observational astronomy are impeccable. He worked mainly in comets and publishes articles with Sky and Telescope magazine. And in 2013, he received the Leslie C. Peltier Award from the Astronomical League. In an article he wrote for Sky and Telescope in 2006, he says, quote, I have created a nine-level scale. It is based on nearly 50 years of observing experience. Should it come into wide use, it would provide a consistent standard for comparing observations with light pollution. 
It did indeed come into use in comet and deep sky observer communities because it's a major improvement from simply reporting reasons why star observations were limited that night. The Bortle scale is a standard metric that astronomers can use to report the limiting magnitude of observational lighting conditions at night. By limiting magnitude, I mean how dim of stars you can see when observing these stars. The larger the magnitude number is, the dimmer the star is. And if such a dim star is visible, the sky must be dark and clear enough to see it. There are also specific messier objects, which I talked about in episode 6. Messier objects are part of a list of deep sky objects categorized by Charles Messier and include nebulae, galaxies, and star clusters. Messier 33, or the Pinwheel Galaxy, is an object that's used to identify two of the best, darkest categories of sky because it is so faint. In truly dark skies, there are still different kinds of light that don't originate from stars. Air glow is a very faint, bluish, naturally occurring glow that hangs around the horizon, usually within about 15 degrees of the horizon line. There's a phenomenon called Gegenschein, the German word for countershine, that is a faint brightening along the ecliptic, the path of the sun across the sky. But this shine is directly opposite the sun. It's highest and easiest to spot during the midnight hour or at 1 a.m. during daylight savings time. Astronomers think that it's caused by the reflection of sunlight off of dust ejected by comets or resulting from asteroid destruction. Gegenschein is backscattered light from dust in the asteroid belt. But there's a similar effect called zodiacal light, which is sunlight scattered forward off dust in the direction of the sun. Both types of glow follow the path of the ecliptic. The Bortle scale breaks things down by visibility, but it also draws on specific color terminology introduced by the World Atlas of Artificial Night Sky Brightness, which I mentioned earlier. Black and gray zones are the best for stargazing. Blue is for rural skies. Green and yellow are the rural-suburban transition zone. Orange is the suburban sky. Red is bright suburbia. And white is for cities and inner cities. I hope you enjoyed this look into light pollution, dark sky reserves, and the Bortle scale. It feels like a quick overview, but I didn't want to spend a ton of time breaking down the rules of dark sky reserves or anything. I think it's more fun to talk about the objects that dark skies allow you to see. I mentioned it in episode 6, but there are a ton of amateur astronomy challenges to look into if you want to go hunting for specific objects in the night sky. The Messier list is one, and there's also the Caldwell list created by Patrick Moore. I have links to both in the show notes for this episode. For the next episode, I just got severely interested in both Shen Kuo and Walter Bade, but I'm also still working on questions for my astrophysics and radio astronomy friend. We hung out last week, and it was delightful, even though we didn't talk much about her research. I did help teach her to play Magic the Gathering and Anomia, though, and I think that was well worth it. I'll try to interview her before the year is up, but she's going to Australia for a bit in December, so I'm not sure it's going to happen before 2018 rolls around. I'm happy to accept question requests on Tumblr, where you don't have to have an account to submit a question to me or a research request. You can also tweet at me on Twitter at HDInTheVoid, all one word. I'm also on iTunes, so you can subscribe there, you can rate the podcast, and if you feel moved to write a review, I would be very grateful. Sika left me a very sweet review, and I really appreciate that. Thank you. One other piece of news. I'm pretty excited to be at PodCon in Seattle this weekend. I'll probably be tweeting about that a lot if I remember I have a Twitter. I'll be making business cards and handing those out, too, so if you want to see what a typewritten business card looks like, try and find me there, I guess. 
God, I have no idea what the chaos is going to be like. Conventions, um, they kind of make me nervous. <laughs> Crowds, specifically, make me nervous. I'm still excited, though. I'll get to see my friend Willa for a weekend, and we'll check out the podcasts that we like for Maximum Fun, and it's going to be great. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy in space. All of it gives me an open road and a generous speed limit. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to give you an open road and room to floor it too. The next episode will be up on December 18th. You can find my sources, music credits, a vocab list, and the episode transcript at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off. <laughs>